So, yeah. So we have this new organized way of doing the podcast. I don't know if you've noticed that on listening to it, Greg, as a fan. Uh, I have been on the show once and seen the organization, so I remember it. Yeah. No, but I meant as a, as a listener. I did right? not noticed. You guys are as all over the place as usual. <laughs> <laughs> So hey everybody, welcome to episode 130 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? I'm also joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. And we have a special guest tonight, Greg Heo in San Francisco, California. Hello. Alrighty, so here we are. Did we do the follow-up yet, Jaime? We haven't. All right. <laughs> we just Let's started, Tim. <laughs> oh yes, that's right. I forgot. Yes, the... the uh, mm-hmm. That's our story, and we're sticking to it. So we have one bit of follow-up from episode 129. Uh, it's from Joe, and we got this on the website. It's uh, following up on the bit where we talked about the 32-bit to 64-bit migration. And Mark had mentioned, like, you know, maybe updating some of his apps, but would it be worth some of the time because of the, the nibs, at, in particular, and size classes? Uh, this comment says, um, the comment about having to update your app with zibs for the 32 bit to 64 bit you don't have to add the zip just continue using the old splash screen files and it will scale the display up for the device they are on i did this for a game of mine because i didn't want to create new artwork worked fine and got rid of the 64 bit slowdown message hmm. yeah really so it is an option like it doesn't give you size class magicness um but if you wanted to do it sort of on the quick and on the cheap that actually makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah it, it definitely does uh yeah you know Considering that I, I just spent about three days updating one of my apps, it was it was a lot of effort for an app that doesn't have that much volume. So, so it may actually make sense to to do exactly that. Just don't worry about modernizing it and future proofing it. Just you know throw it out there as is and and uh, just see how it goes. Yeah, your minimum viable product for the thirty four bit to sixty four bit transition. Yep, is just like runs and doesn't get you know disabled by Apple in the future. Yeah. I just hate to see, you know, the, the small device and the shadow box and all that, you know, I, I hate that kind of stuff. But. Yeah, well, in my case, it was because I was using Coco's 2D libraries and they were all 32-bit. So I had to, had to upgrade the 32-bit framework to 64-bit Coco's 2D. So Is that because Coco they were using S2D? floats instead of CG float? So it didn't have the, the right numbers? Yeah, there were a lot of weird things in there. There's a lot of C in... Um, as I recall, in uh, Coco's... How do you say Coco's 2D? Coco's 2D, yeah. Because yeah. Coco's is actually a city, apparently. It's just it's, <laughs> it's completely coincidence that it sounds kind of like Coco. Right. It's spelled oh, really? C-O-C-O-S. It's named after a, a city, and I, I couldn't tell you what country it's in, uh, but uh, it's the city where the original developers lived. Oh, really? And wow. it was a 2D huh. library, so they called it Coco's... 2D. Maybe there was a Cocos okay, 1D originally. Right. I don't know. Cocos 1D. <laughs> or Cocos 8-bit or whatever. Yeah. I, I could write a one-dimensional, even I could write a one-dimensional <laughs> graphics library. <laughs> huh? <laughs> okay. All right. Um, Let's see. So. We have Google here, so we can see. Brazil is what comes up for me. Is Brazil, that, does okay. that sound yeah, familiar? That makes Mark? sense. That sounds okay. about right. Yeah, I was thinking it was hmm. in South America somewhere. Well, I'm sure the name Coco comes from somewhere down there too, doesn't it? Where the cocoa bean comes from? 
<laughs> oh, the beans themselves. Oh, originally, so. sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always thought that the uh, the use of, of the word for, for the Apple libraries were was sort of a, a, a dig at Java, which was really hot at the time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but I have no evidence of that. I think that's I, the story I had heard was they had they bought some company who owned a trademark on Coco and they just reused it like ah. it was some completely different library that did something else and they were like we need a name for this thing and they're like what do we have you know sort of in the box and they're mm. like Coco and and I think yeah for that reason too Mark they're like oh you know it's another hot beverage and we, mm-hmm. this company already has it it was like some graphics library or you know some I don't know OCR scanning library and they're like oh we'll just use the name so that's I think that's the story I've heard. And it's funny, you know, as a new developer working in macOS back then, I was really confused by Coco and Carbon because they were very mm. close together in, in sort of sound and, mm. you know, I could never mm-hmm. remember which one was which and whatever, right? So, mm-hmm. And they both had a dog on the O'Reilly book, you know, so they were very close. <laughs> were they different <laughs> kinds of dogs, though? Yeah, they were. They were different breeds of dogs, okay. but one was Coco and one was Carbon, and it was like, uh, I don't know which one I'm supposed to study here. And there was, other, <laughs> it was another one... Uh, it wasn't basic. It was something else. It was uh, they had the Java the bridge time. back then. Is that what you mean? No, there was. It was no. I've got the book upstairs. I can go look at it. But yeah, whatever. Um, hmm. Moving on. Buddy Build is a continuous integration, continuous deployment, and user feedback platforms built specifically for the mobile development teams. Buddy Build takes just minutes to set up and automates the process, configuring a reliable and robust platform to build, test, and deploy your apps. Gone are the days of retrofitting legacy web infrastructure and constantly maintaining build scripts to meet your mobile development needs. BuddyBuild gives you back the time normally spent on creating and maintaining your development pipeline so you can focus on building apps your users will love. With BuddyBuild, thousands of companies like Slack, Meetup, and Firefox are confident in their mobile development infrastructure again. Find out more about BuddyBuild at BuddyBuild.com. So I posted something here about uh, an article about from Forbes about uh, an OLED display coming to the iPhone 8 or iPhone X or iPhone 10, they may call it as well, which is the next iPhone apparently coming out. And having worked on the um, the track touch bar on the, on the new MacBook Pros, I could see why it would be an attractive choice for a nice matte display. Have you guys had a chance to look at this article? Sort of compares Apple to the or the iPhone 8 to the Samsung Galaxy S8 and the Google Pixel. Does the Google Pixel have OLED phone, OLED screen? Don't know. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head here. Uh, but I did look at this article here about. Uh, it talks a little bit about Samsung's uh, dominance in in this space in terms of uh, you know creating these displays and whether it's feasible for them to be a provider to Apple for like the massive number of of iPhones that we need to uh, create uh, with this display. And then there's a little bit of talk about like um, OLED or OLEDs themselves versus LCDs. And they do point out something that's, you know, I think quite right in that, um, you know, the, the battery performance is uh, better uh, for managing power and brightness uh, better than LCD. But I think the thing that, that kind of gives me a, huh, I don't know if Apple will do this sort of thing is the, well, the color accuracy hasn't always been that great. And I feel like that's sort of a, mm. a non-starter for an Apple device where... Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they've, they've, they've added, you know, wider color and, and true tone and all these other things that are meant to be, you know, making use of richer, more accurate color. So I, I, I don't know. I think the, the performance of, of that color accuracy will definitely be a, a huge, I don't know, 
sticking point at the very least, like if they can get it good enough, like, because imagine, oh, we got this new iPhone. Wow. It's got twice as much battery life, but the screen looks terrible. I mean, would, but does yeah, that really yeah. sell well? I don't know. Yeah. That's a hard one to sell. Well, particularly since the iPhone 7 just has got the DCI P3 color gamut that we talked about a couple of weeks ago as well, right? But yeah, and, and in terms of supplying, and they're, they're in this article, they're, they're, they're guessing that uh, Apple will likely sell around 250 million iPhones in 20, or 2017 alone. So I can imagine how many they'll do in uh, with the iPhone 8 if it surfaces as such. Hmm. And it's also looking here, what is it? OLED is organic something, right? Organic light emitting diode. Right, okay. And how does that different than a regular, uh, what are we, LED screens we have now? They're, it's a different technology. It's uh, the, the regular LEDs are, are, are a semiconductor crystal type of LED, whereas the organic LEDs are uh, made from uh, organic molecules. <laughs> <laughs> Peas and carrots, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, that's, that's what I like to tell you. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, I think for developers, you know, if they do go to OLED, I mean, the battery life changes will will be great because I think that means that Apple can be a little bit more aggressive with how it's, you know, divvying out things like like networking, for example, right? You you might see a, a bit of an uptick of like, oh yeah, we, we can call your your backgrounded app a little bit more often because we're not as worried about battery life mm-hmm. anymore. If they can keep the color accuracy, I think it pushes even more for that. Uh, support of wide color gamut, uh, which, funny enough, we actually did talk about not that long ago, and it was related to an Instagram article about how they dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Funny so, thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely keep your eye out for that. The only other pluses yeah. and minus I've heard is that they, they're they much thinner. Like, you see those flexible displays, almost like a piece of paper, and you can right. fold, not fold it up, but you can kind of bend it, and you get, like, a flexible yeah. piece of plastic, and it's like, it's an LED display, which is pretty cool. But then the one other downside I heard was that it's not as water resistant. So you have to be really careful about, mm. you know, washing away those organic compounds that are sandwiched in there. And so... Since a regular LED is just a semiconductor crystal, yeah. it's, it's rigid, right? So it has to be thicker. Yeah. Uh, and, and it has to be grown in a kind of a... It, it's a, it's a uh, you know, a crystal growth type of process. Or you start with a, a wafer mm. and implant different, um, different uh, dopants to change the electrical properties. But it is—it's a physical solid, whereas the OLED is—is is kind of a—it's a—it's a chemical of these you know polymer type molecules, uh, and because of that, it's—it's a—it's kind of a it's more of a, a chemical deposition process. So it's—it's it's just a layer of these molecules, and therefore you can spin it onto plastic, and you can and you can bend it. So that's how you get curved screens and things like that. But but as you said, because they're organic molecules, there they react with water. So if you if you get it wet, then it can just wash away and now that hmm. the iphone 7s and 7 pluses are like you know you can take them in the bath with you is, is that actually official or should i not say that <laughs> maybe an asterisk <laughs> on that statement i'm pretty sure they're very water resistant or whatever the word is um so this might just throw another wrench in there they have to really make sure they're sealed or something like that um mm-hmm. so i don't know between the color difference and oled degradation i don't know if they've, they've fixed that part and the water it seems like it'll be a bit of a step down i know apple loves having less power draw which means they can have a smaller battery and a thinner phone but it seems like too many minuses still unless they've i don't I'm, i guess i'm not up to date on the technology if they've overcome all of those downsides that it seems like apple would really care about 
Mm. Indeed. So indeed. Pic- pictured here is a Galaxy S7 Edge with a curved OLED display. So I thought the Samsung 7 thingies were all backorder. That's or the Note, or Note 7. The Note 7, okay. Yeah. Different phone, I guess. You right? said Galaxy, right? Yes, it's Galaxy. Yeah, I think yeah, the Galaxy Notes are like seven. the tablets. Is that right? I, I have no idea what Samsung to be honest, but I think the Notes no, are No, they're, they're more similar to like the, the relationship between the Plus model okay. to the regular model for the iPhones, if Got you it. think about it that so it's way. A, it's the big, it's the phablet. It's the big phone. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, I see. Got right, it. right. Well, interesting article here if people want to read up on some of the things that... Uh, it was actually a display expert who was being quizzed on the uh, potential benefits of an OLED display on an iPhone. Hmm. Dude, who, who put... What programming languages folks use? On I a just weekday. added that because I saw the store. I don't know. There's not really much to say. <laughs> that much to say. It's just interesting. I thought. Do you? Did you see that? Where Stack Overflow compared what people like look at on the weekend no, versus what people one. look at on the weekday? It was interesting. So is there a big difference? Um, well, the weekday is like SharePoint Ooh, by that. far, and SharePoint. on the weekend it's Haskell and Assembly. I think. So it was, I thought it was interesting what people wow. are looking at. Yeah. And just to see, you know, mm. is it side projects? Is it what people want to learn? That's like the new hotness and what people are working on during the day. Anyway, I was just like, I always like like the Stack Overflow, um, the survey that they put mm-hmm. out. There's always some yeah. interesting data. This is just one more thing. So, Well, it's uh, kind yeah. of interesting if you look at it. The the top couple, well, not T-SQL, but SharePoint, PowerShell, SOAP, mm. those are all Microsoft tech- and SQL servers yeah. up there too. Those are all T- Microsoft yeah. technologies. I think TSQL is, is T- also. I don't know what it is, but oh, maybe it is. I, I read yeah, further I, I down. Know. I think I it's know. also Microsoft. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, it, it is. Uh, yeah. Transact SQL. Mm-hmm. And there's also mm-hmm. Excel in there. VBA, VBA, Visual Basic. These are all Microsoft things. So it looks like people are using a lot of Microsoft products while they're at work. But once they go home for the weekend, they're not using any. <laughs> they're doing completely different stuff, which I guess wow. is not too surprising. Yeah, there's a big difference between what you get paid for and what you what you do for fun. Like, decide you want to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, SVN is on there, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was more interesting for me. Like, what are people hobbyists? What do they think they should be learning? Is maybe reading too much into it? But it's like, oh my god, I'm doing all this Microsoft stuff during the day that I hate. I'm you know exaggerating, but then it's like, all right, what's going to be my weekend project on either something that's interesting or something that I think will help me get like another job that I'm interested in, and so. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Haskell was a little surprising. That feels more like, ah, oh, this functional thing. I keep hearing about it. I should learn about it. But things like OpenGL pointers, I don't know, I don't know how pointers made it on there, but pointers, like yeah, Open, OpenGL and algorithm, I think. Algorithm especially is like people studying for their uh, algorithm interviews is what I got out of that. But yeah. It's um, not a OpenGL, typo they mean algol, right? <laughs> I would hope not. But uh, <laughs> OpenGL, Python, I mean... Those kind of things, I feel like, are skills that people think they should have. C++ 11, and then, yeah, algorithm, pointers, recursion are the very uh, job interviewee kind of questions, I think. I also see a split between, like, open source and therefore free versus things that are closed source, proprietary, and expensive. Like, Mm -hmm. Oracle is expensive. SharePoint is expensive. Um, Google App Engine, not free, but, you know, pretty cheap. It's it's free to, to start free. though, isn't it? You can do you can put up a project as long as it's low volume for free. I think. Oh, okay. They still have that. Okay, yeah. And yeah. I think the same is true of Heroku as well. But like yeah. Express and Python and OpenGL, Haskell Assembly, all that stuff is freely available. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to go throw down money on like a SQL Server 2008 instance just to tinker around with with it, right? Like even if I had an interest in doing that, it would just be like too pricey to do. Now, since this chart is showing the the relative frequency, not the absolute frequency of these things, 
uh, I guess it's telling us that Swift and Objective-C and, and all the iOS and macOS related languages are equally used during the week and during the weekend. Yeah, if you're looking so, at the bar chart, it's showing you the what has the biggest difference. So it's like SharePoint mm-hmm. has relatively more. Like it's the absolute numbers are pretty small. I think, for example, Haskell makes up 0.365 percent of weekend questions, but 0.21 of weekday questions. So that's only a 0.15-ish point difference. But that is the largest delta of anything. I think is the way to read it. Um, so that's the bar chart. But if you scroll a little bit down, there's a nice, I don't know what you call it, like a scatter plot or something like that. That shows. Yeah, scatter plot, yeah. Um, so the stuff that's near the center, like the vertical center, are things that are searched sort of equally, like you said, Mark, uh, weekends and weekend, yep. uh, weekends and weekday. And I see Objective C there, uh, sort of right above and I see the center. IOS line. slightly to the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where so it's is in the middle, right? Switch. Also in the middle, yeah. Just in the, on the center line, but at the top. So, like, not. Too far up the line. Okay. Okay. Right so in the middle. is a little bit more on weekends. Weekends, yeah. Right. Uh, whereas Objective C is about the about slightly above the same line, but very close. So, yeah. So that okay that 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 implies, I guess, that for their jobs, a lot of people are still using Objective C, but they're going mm-hmm. on the weekends and using Swift. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, like everybody was saying, below the line, like, yeah, all I can see is ASP.net, Windows, <laughs> WinForms, you know, XPath, XML stuff. Look at where SharePoint so, is. SharePoint is way, yeah. SharePoint yeah, is, it's an nobody wants to touch that once they, <laughs> once they clock out. <laughs> it's an outlier for sure. There's right. no such really outlier yeah. wow. on above the line. I guess like Assembly, Haskell, OpenGL, but SharePoint is way, way down there. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is a scatter based on the questions that are asked on Stack Overflow, right? For those of you driving at home. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's based on the tags. Yeah. Yeah, which which presumably correlates to actual usage, but doesn't necessarily completely correlate. It could just be that people wait to ask their questions uh, on Stack Overflow on the weekend, for example. Uh, mm. so, yeah. So it's not 100%. But from left, or, from left to right, it's frequency of questions, right? So, you know, JavaScript is, even though it's the same from weekend to weekday, it's practically on the line, but it's got the number of questions are, are on the on the complete right-hand side, right? So um, Yeah, yeah. So, like, SharePoint, even though lots of people are asking. Interesting stuff. Yeah. And I think the thing that I looked at at the bottom of the, the last paragraph of this blog post is that uh, all this data is openly accessible, so anybody could have come up with this, although it was the Stack Overflow folks themselves. So if you're like a data nerd and you want to, I don't know, mine the data for something, then uh, you can always go and have at it. We don't have any data nerds, do we, Greg? Um, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Other than you. This seems like the perfect thing to write some Fortran to go analyze. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. For, for, the, for those who aren't clear and like the most in-joked of in-jokes, because literally maybe 20 minutes before I jumped on the call, I was like, oh, let me listen to this podcast. Oh, who's that? It's Greg. You're interviewing Greg. Oh, turns out you got the um, kind of like hazing, developer hazing as a wee uh, lad. Right. Having to write Fortran code when nobody else wanted to. <laughs> That's right. Start <laughs> launched my whole career thanks to Fortran. Did it really? Yeah. Wow. Is Fortran on here? I don't see it on here. That's too bad. It's almost a shame. No. But I heard there was some job openings at NASA for people who know COBOL, because apparently there's a few satellites that are going to start calling home, and nobody knows how to how to respond. Hmm. 
Because the guys have all retired or retiring soon. That sounds like some easy money for anybody consulting. Yeah, I mentioned that on the podcast. We had to call up some guy who was like on the golf course or something. And, you know, he was like, all right, I got 20 minutes. What do you want? And I had to ask him a bunch of hard really? questions. Yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I was like, where are you? He's like, oh, I'm down in Florida. And, you know, I worked on these computers, you know, 20 years ago. But nobody else could answer the questions. So I had like 20 minutes with him on the phone which for which i'm sure he charged like a thousand dollars or something but you know Mm. nobody else knew this stuff yeah knowing which which screw to put in yeah and there is a fortran tag on stack overflow of course so only seven thousand questions tagged though but maybe i'll browse through and Hmm. raise my karma a little karma a little bit by answering some of these so jaime you got something here about notifications yeah this is this is an article about you know what's sort of the best way to deal with NS notification center notifications specifically in terms of, you know, what are the different ways that you can define the notification name and, and who's responsible for it. Right. And he talks about, you know, well, you can have the model define it, or you can have the observer define it. Um, and, and then he kind of goes into something in between that's kind of built more of a, like a coordinator type pattern to, to mediate things. And the observer pattern here. Uh, I'm sorry, the model defining it is kind of where I think I've tended to do it personally, uh, because it just made the most sense that if I'm if I'm going to port this model around, then you get the notifications that go along with it. Uh, the downside, though, to, to defining it with the model here, as he points out, is that if you can move a model to other things like, you know, like the Apple Watch instead of just being on iPhone, like, is that an intentional movement? You kind of took along all of this baggage with you. The observer defining things was, was another model. And I think I've done that on one project for that. That's kind of okay, but it, it's felt like it coupled myself too too much to what was going on there. It, it just feels a little little backwards. And then I looked at, at this example here where he gives on the, the something in between where basically using a coordinator, or let's just call it like a mediator type thing where that mediator is the one who's responsible for knowing how things sort of stitch together. And that's okay. And and I think at the bottom here, it kind of points out like, well, is it a better choice? It's kind of a lot of extra overhead to deal with for what did we really gain out of decoupling our architecture this way? Yes, it can be done. Should it be done? Is it the right trade-off? And that's kind of what I propose here to the, to the group here of like your experiences with using NS notification center and, and how you've dealt with this. I'm just scrolling through, and um, I admit I was reading something else while <laughs> while Mark was talking. <laughs> but um, how, like, isn't NS Notification Center already the mediator and the abstraction? What benefit do you gain by having one level in front of that? That's not entirely so, clear to me. So not NS Notification Center, like, itself. Right. Because you're right. It is sort of like um, the event bus here. Uh-huh. But where do you define, because the notifications are like stringly typed, let's say, right? Right. Like, where right. do you define that? And a lot of folks are saying, oh, whatever, just slam it into the PCH file and call it good. It's like, well, no, we probably shouldn't do that. Okay, well, let's put it in a constants file. Mm, okay, maybe. Uh, how do I know this is associated with this particularly? Okay, well, let's move it closer to the model, which is like a thing that I've used before. It's like, well, if you're, if you're using this model, here are the notifications uh, keys that you can get from this sort of thing, right? What sort of events will it spit up? Oh, the transaction has been rejected or oops, you know, I had to roll back to something else sort of thing. Okay. Got it. So I typically use NS notifications for 
dealing with uh, like different working on different threads. Like for example, if you, if you're if you're syncing some core data in the background and you need to tell your UI that something was updated, so that's where I'll use an MS notification. Uh, and so they're not specifically in the models themselves, but they're in a, a model controller, I guess, which which is a coordinator by this definition. So I, I guess this makes sense. It's not, you know. Okay, so if, if I'm wanted to hook into whatever you've implemented there, mm -hmm. I would work with the, the mediator or coordinator there to say, like, okay, well, what what's available to me? What can I register for and listen for? Yeah, so yes, although, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably just as often make those the definitions of the of the notifications be more or less global those strings um following apple right i mean in objective c a lot of those notification names are are just global strings right yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is there is there any difference in swift is there like a swifty way to do this like as an analogy i've seen folks do things um to make it you know Compiler will tell you there's a problem with your storyboard because your segue is incorrect sort of things, right? Where they, yeah, they yeah. extend things. Is there anything similar for this? Uh, you could build an enum. And I've actually, I have done that actually. Just have one big enum uh, that has all of the different notifications for, for a given class or typically class is the case where I would use that. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a, I don't know, maybe six of one, half dozen the other because you're still treating it sort of as a as a global because it's a it's a it's a static reference to the enum right uh, mm -hmm. because you have to be able it has to be available anywhere so does that really buy you anything other than cleaner code i'm not sure but it does look cleaner i mean you can because you see the the uh the sort of the owner of the of the of the, of the notification which would be the coordinator uh as the uh, you know, as the as the root of the of the access to the to the uh, to the enum. Yeah, that's pretty close. I was going to suggest the yeah. enum as well, with uh, backed by a string. So you would, if you had still had some kind of object in between, and you would say like, or you just put an extension on NS Notification Center, and you said like post notification, you know, my notifications dot whatever, and then that would just decode that enum value into the backing string, and it would post it. And then when you register for notifications, instead of register no for notification for string, you would say register notification for, and you would give your enumeration type, and then you would get sort of strongly typed enumerations. Right. So it's just another layer. It's just a nice checked layer yeah. on top. And yeah. All that does is get rid of the stringly typeness, which is, I think, worth it. But that's about as mm -hmm. far as I've gotten for, um, for this kind of thing. Yeah. So you would put them all into one single... Uh, structure that that you call my notifications and put all your notifications in there as opposed to tie the notifications to where they're either being generated or probably where they're being generated as opposed to where they're being used would make more sense yeah for a small i think i just worked on like a really small app and there weren't that many and well part of it is like notifications are a very global thing if it's a mm -hmm. little more tightly coupled mm -hmm. i would say you should use a delegate or something like that but it's mm -hmm. like uh, somebody hit the ringer switch. I think that is a system that I'm just making this up. Someone hit the ringer switch, for example. So I'm going to have a thing that listens for that and posts a notification. And that's a very global event. It's not like specific. And so that's generally how I like to think about notifications is they should be very yeah. broad system-wide things, not like 
my one particular model class updated this one field, I'm going to post a notification. I would tend not to use it there. So it's almost a nice check. I would say, yes, all notifications are on one global app level enumeration. If that, get, if that list got too large, I would think I'm doing something wrong. So it might be a nice mm-hmm. check mm-hmm. there as well. Kind of like yeah. people who have their yeah. terminal set to 80 columns and they're like, if it's more than that, then you're doing something wrong. If there are too many tabs, you know, levels of indentation, you're doing something wrong. So maybe this mm-hmm. is a, a similar kind of a check. Yeah. So, so fundamentally, there's, there's not much difference between that and just having one big settings file that has all these listed, except yes. that you get the, 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 uh, the type check, the type uh, safety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, you could also do some more fancy stuff if you are using enumerations where each notification gets the enumeration case, but you can also have an associated value. And then your extension or whatever your helper is can, you know, it can take the user info and it could cast it and it could put it in the associated values. So the API you would get on the other end would be very nice because you would listen for this notification and then it would give you the case with the associated value already typed out. And then that would be kind of nice, too, if you wanted to take it one step further. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I've, I haven't done it myself. But I think I saw that somewhere, some sample code once, and I kind of liked it. Yeah. But, uh, but at the same time, the NS notification already has a user info field built into it. So it's a little bit redundant to... to oh, no, that. that's what I mean. Like, behind the yeah. scenes, it would use user info. But your extension oh, on see. NS Notification Center would take the user info. It would say, I know what this notification should be sending. I'm going to stick it yep. in the associated value. So it, it, it just handles the casting for you. So um, mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. post a notification, you say, my notifications dot this notification with an int. And then it packs it into the user info. And then for the receiver, it looks like my notification with an int. And it unpacked it. So yes, it, it is using the user info behind the scenes. It's just handling the mm-hmm. casting yeah. and the uh, pulling out of the dictionary and that stuff. And I guess that that gives you a way to enforce type typeness or type safety on the user info. Yeah, exactly. As well. yeah. So that, that's that's useful too. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool stuff. So I guess a big question for the day for this episode is: Do people mow their lawns in wintertime in the UK? I don't think that I honestly thought they never mowed their lawns because it was either too cold or too rainy. And did I even see a lawn when mm. I was in the UK? I don't even know. So, yeah. <laughs> well, they do have them. I, I just, I'm just curious. Because, I, I mean, I think the next topic is one that's going to probably do another dive into some code here. Jaime? Yeah. So way back in episode 128, we briefly talked on, touched upon RX Swift because it was on the list of like, 30 some cocoa pods you should immediately add to your project sort of thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> he says uh a part of the reason i definitely wanted greg on the show today was to talk about the rx swift bits because i had mentioned that there's a whole series of blog posts and it looks like it's five um blog posts in the series that we'll have linked uh, in the show notes uh by casey list who you probably know from listening to uh, the atp podcast and he talks about rx swift and sort of like Taking through an example of like, here's what you could do. And I think I mentioned the example itself because that's what came to mind. Like you tap a button and you keep track of how many times that button has been tapped and you display it in a label on the screen. And this goes through sort of like the the hows and whys of RX Swift. Like, you know, in his examples here, he talks about, you know, trying to be as stateless as possible with your programming to eliminate bugs from that, you know, state mismanagement. Um, and having better sort of local reasoning where you don't have like spooky things happening at a distance that are, you know, in this trivial example, yeah, you would obviously notice if something wrong happened there, but I've certainly been in situations where you have a little state machine going on 
um, let's say like on a view controller or something else and things kind of go awry. All right. So, um, it's also come to my attention that, that, that Greg here is like the master of, uh, (laughs) given that he is presented on this very topic somewhere in the Bay area, I think is where that was at. Yes, it was here. (laughs) So Greg, um, somebody who's, who's only sort of, you know, taking a look at, at this sort of thing, I've, I can only go so far with that. I'm definitely interested in some of like your experience with that and, and sort of the, the hows and whys, like why, why should we bring in something like Arc Swift, especially considering that it's a, a third party component, right? That's not something that's, you know, sort of blessed by Apple itself and that we know or is, Mark. is here. Yeah. It's just in there. <laughs> right. So there's always a little bit of, of risk involved in that sort of thing. Yeah. That's but true. I'm sure there's many benefits too. Yeah. I'm, I'm still a big asterisk. I'm still a, a beginner at this stuff too um but what i liked about it i mean it's it's a pretty light i should get the size but it's a pretty lightweight framework from what i remember is basically um like the project as a whole is called reactive extensions i think and it, it really is just an extension that adds some handy stuff to a bunch of ui components and to arrays and things like that um i'm just while i'm talking i'm just curious about how big the project is and i use carthage to do the build if I look at the RX Coco framework, it's, oh, 14 megs. I guess that's debug and all the slices and whatever. Mm. Um, browsing through the code, though, seems relatively lightweight. I don't know how framework that gets linked in. How does that increase the binary size? I don't know. But anyway, it seems a relatively lightweight kind of a thing. Maybe that's not actually true, but it feels like it. And what I like about it is how it kind of makes you think about how is the data going to go through my app so for example um network request is very common so i have an open network port it's going to push data through i don't know when it's going to happen it's asynchronous but when it does happen then i would like to do something or like the example i mentioned where it's like when the user taps on the button i would like to do something and usually we would hook it up with like target action or kvo or a delegate or something like that and what i like about the sort of reactive model is it formalizes that a little bit more and say and in Swift, it's really good because it's typed and it's like, all right, the network thing over here is going to give me a sequence of uh, JSON. It's going to give me a sequence of strings or ints or uh, this struct that I've defined. And it's just, just going to keep pushing them out. And every time I get a new value, what do I want to do? I want to update my table view or I want to update the label or I want to update the image or something like that. And so I kind of like that, kind of like how the internet is a series of tubes. And if you think of your programs as a series of tubes and like transformers so for example if you had json coming in and you say i need to parse that and turn that into a string i need to turn that into an image url but then i need to download that image url and then that's going to turn into an image and it's going to show up in this image view and you can imagine that sequence of events and that is almost exactly how you would program it in like rx swift is you would chain them together and say that json is going to pull out the image i'm going to send a network request i'm going to get back some bits i'm going to turn that into a ui image and then i'm going to display it on this image view and that whole sequence is kind of encapsulated in one chain of stuff of little helpers like you have a little helper that turns bits into a ui image and you have a little helper that turns a ui image and binds it to like an image view or something like that and so that's kind of what i like about it it makes you think more about the data than the actual mechanisms it's like how is the data flow going to go through my app and you just describe how it works so that's those are kind of the highlights of it for me. Yeah. So so I haven't used this, but I, I did read the the uh, tutorial that you mm-hmm. sent, uh, Jaime, 
and and there's mm-hmm. one thing that that wasn't 100 clear to me uh and it might have just been related to his particular example uh, the example in the tutorial is is a count how many times a button has been tapped and and it seems to me what he's saying is that the button is sending a stream of events essentially uh and keeping a record of of every event in that stream pretty much forever so that anytime you need to you want to count the number of taps in this particular example rather than keeping a state variable it can just go in and count the number of events in the stream and that, and that's your answer so my question then is is it is it storing these streams of events forever and and if so how can that not become a big performance issue as time goes on? I don't think it's, I think it's more like a, a reduce operation where it's like, it like reduce is going to iterate through the array and it's going to keep like an accumulator kind of, or some kind of a state and pass it through each time. I think it's more like that. It's not actually keeping the whole stream around. It's just kind of. But does, doesn't that, isn't it the scan function that he's talking about doing exactly that? Just it's enumer- enumerating through all of the uh, the items. I have to look at it, but it's asynchronous, though. Mm-hmm. So it's not like when you get one value, then it's like, oh, I got a value. I, I, I haven't looked at the exact example. Yeah, yeah. This may be just something related to that, that exact example. It might not be a general, uh, a general thing, but it, that just kind of struck me as a lot. Uh, especially yeah, but- for if you're doing something, if like you were saying, you know, decoding images or something like that. If you're if it's storing all of that image data in the stream indefinitely then that would become a problem so it can't be doing that uh, yeah so. uh, yeah i just clicked on it and he, he does say it's like reduce so i think it is just getting the first event and saying oh that's one and then mm-hmm. it's like okay i'm going to remember one and then the next time you get an event just like reduce it'll say okay the previous value is one and you take whatever the current event is and it's like i'm just going to increment it now it's two so I think it just keeps passing it back. I don't think I actually remember. Like, there's no. So it's, it's just keeping the, the last value. Then, yeah. So it is. It, it is. There is state. It's it's just hidden state. Um, right. It's well, like again, state you can't is, mess too much with. Because scan is like reduce and reduce kind of has like that's the whole point. It has a little bit of state that it keeps passing back to you. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In that case, but you can have other kinds of streams that don't have any state, like. Um, I don't like the image example. It's just like, give me the bits, turn that into an image, put it on the image view, and that's it. Like, you don't have to remember anything once you've reached the, the end of that chain. So that's RX Swift. I think the other thing I like <laughs> is, um, the other thing I kind of liken it to is, um, like, le- declarative layout. Like, if you use, um, I don't know, Component Kit is like a Facebook project. I think React is also similar in the way that you lay things out. The other example I gave is stack views. So you say... I would like mm-hmm. a horizontal stack, please, with this much spacing. And here are the three views. And then you just say go. And then it says, and it kind of does all of the auto layout constraints or whatever it does under the hood to build that view to your specifications. But you just describe the thing. You don't actually have to lay out, like, what's the screen size? What are the bounds? I'm going to divide it by three. And you don't have to do any of that stuff. You just describe what you want and then you do it. And so uh, RX Swift feels very much like that, where you have all of these little. I was going to say threads, I shouldn't use the word, like little strings of like, oh, I could get an image here, I could get a string here, I could get an int here. And then all you do is you wire them up together and you say, okay, combine that string and combine that number and then multiply by this other number and then output this other string and then put it over here in this text view or something like that. 
and you try, you kind of describe how you want the system to work and then you're like okay go and then you launch the app and you tap on the button and everything is already wired together and so i don't know i kind of like that I, I do like that with layouts and so this feels like doing a similar thing with um application logic which i like right it's much more declarative of what you want rather than imperative of saying you know do this then do that then do that other thing and sort of like losing the the forest for the trees and the details of like well this is sort of really what i want um you know give it to me sort of thing like you might have with uh sql right that's like a fourth generation language you say like uh, give me everybody who has you know this type of, of product in their purchase history mm-hmm. you're not really yeah. telling the system oh well go scan this table and then you know loop through these records you're just like no it, it will figure that out for me sort of thing yeah exactly like you have all of these inputs that you can define like for example in this case there's the there's the button right there's like a single input i think in the example i had in the in the meetup was like a bunch of sliders and it's like okay these are all the or like network data and you say these are all of the possible inputs to my system and you say what am i going to do with them and then what do i want the outputs to be so i'm going to print out to a label i'm going to draw some view i'm going to you know set the label text i'm going to set the font or whatever and then yeah you just declare how do i want those inputs to turn into the outputs and then you declare them all and then that's kind of it. There's like no, well, quote unquote, no logic, but uh, it's declarative rather than imperative, as Simon put it. So um, different way to look at things, but I, I kind of like it. So that part of it appeals to me. It does keep everything sort of together as a, a more concrete set of steps. So if you skip ahead to part five, um, a little bit before he goes into the event provider bits and the unit testing bits, he's all right. When this button is tapped, um, the terminology is a little weird. Like, it makes sense when you read the the tutorial here, but I, I could see that being um, not a stumbling block, but sort of a learning curve to get used to what you see there. Like, what does the word scan mean? Which I think we we talked about mm-hmm. a little bit. Of you know, it's like seeing these events as they come in is essentially what it, what it is in a nutshell. And then, um. It has a little bit of a sideways thing of, you know, as driver for like what, what happens on error? What do you, what do you do in that case? Um, but if you ignore that one, it's really take this event, take that count from that event. Okay. Then map it to what you want. In this case, take, um, that event count and say, okay, well shove it into this string. So we know how many times this thing has been, uh, tapped as a user, user readable way. And then, drive into putting that actually on the label text. And then the other sort of weird thing that uh, is a little weird is the life cycle for, for these things. So that you don't end up with these weird sort of memory issues considerations. They have this concept of a disposed bag that uh, is a little weird. It's sort of like adding a please garbage collect me now sort of thing to it or, <laughs> or like a auto release. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, at the meetup, I think I got most the most questions about the bags because, uh, and I was like, man, I should have done a little more research because I was getting a lot of questions. <laughs> but um, that's kind of how I compared it. I also said it's like a an auto release pool, so the observable that you have, you know, like watch the button and print out the string or whatever it is, that thing will live as long as the bag does. So when the bag goes out of the scope, it'll kind of clean up after itself. So it is, uh, I looked at the ARC Swift documentation. They also give that analogy. They, well, they say it's like ARC, which is not quite correct. 
um, I don't think arc is hmm. the right word, but later on they say it's like an auto-release pool. I'm like, okay, so I think that's the correct analogy here. Yeah, it doesn't seem like arc at all because of the whole thing about arc is that you don't have to explicitly dispose of something. Yeah, right? maybe I should put a pull request yeah. on that bit of documentation because I'm like, I don't think I don't think they mean arc, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. But and, definitely auto-release pool. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the thing I like here uh, in this part five is where they mention testing and. Uh, that's that's yeah. another thing that I like because, you know, whenever whenever you're dealing with testing, you're like, oh, I have to like deal with mocks and how am I going to do this? And because everything like observables and subscriptions, all the stuff is just sequences, and sequences are very similar to array. Arrays are sequences, but all sequences aren't arrays. Oh. Doesn't go the other way. Anyway, so since these are all sequences, you're thinking, oh man, how do I mock a sequence? I don't know how to do that. It's like, I, you, of course you know how to do. It. You just make an array, right? So if you make an array mm. of the sort of sample data that you want to feed into your test, then it's very easy to push that through and say, you know, like in real life, tapping this button generates this event, which should increment a counter. And so it's very easy to just make an array of like fake tap events. Like a tap event doesn't really have any data. So it's just like button was tapped and that's it. So you can just make a fake array of five taps and just push it through. And then you expect it to be equal to five or whatever. And so it makes it very easy to test i think the word unit test is very applicable here because you have these small units of work changing it to an image parsing json turning strings or turning ints into strings and things like that and so testing each individual piece becomes very easy so i really like that part of it too and again it's just sequences so you just make an array of your sample data and then you make an array of what you expect and then you just xct assert equal to two and then you're done so i like that right i think the the power of the abstraction here is sort of what enables you to do that like you as a counter you, you could actually do that sort of thing you know writing against interfaces or, or protocols and, and get something very very similar mm-hmm. i think one thing i see here with rx swift is that they've given you a lot of that infrastructure um above and beyond right like they have a way to schedule when these events will happen so they just don't happen in this huge series uh like you know as fast as the cpu can process them sort of thing Mm-hmm. You can say, well, let's make it a little bit more realistic where user taps at one second and then at two and then three or three and a half or whatever it is. And you can sort of schedule those, which when I've used, you know, XC test case type stuff, that's that's always been like a stumbling block is that it's a, it's a little awkward with the tools that we get out of the box from uh, from Apple and Xcode. Mm-hmm. But this, I actually did like that very piece you were talking about where, well, since it's already abstracted anyways, given that I'm using this infrastructure um, and they've gone through the effort of doing something where, yeah, I probably would have had to write my own little scheduler type thing, you know, if I was doing this uh, raw, and especially with something like, you know, let's say like Objective-C, like all I have is Objective-C and Xcode, exactly what I get out of the box. I don't think this would be quite as, as fun to do, and I might avoid doing the testing altogether in that case. <laughs> but here it sort of seems like, well, all right, you know, for, for a dollar more, <laughs> why don't I take another one? Of course, why not? That's interesting that you like the scheduling. I was kind of the opposite because I was writing an app that, you know, took user input. And I was thinking, I don't I don't care about the asynchronous part. I just want to say, here are the hundred events and just push them through as fast as you can. And I expect the output to be this. So I was actually like, I don't want the scheduling. Like if I were, I was writing like a tic-tac-toe game and then the input was like a series of moves that the user makes. And I'm thinking if I didn't have our if i had architected the app very badly and it was just a regular coco app i'd be like i guess i would use like ui testing and i would pretend like click at this coordinate click at this coordinate like to fake play the game and then make sure that when some player wins that it detects that properly based on the clicks 
But with RX Swift, when I put that in, the game just became like a series of moves. And then it's like, that's very easy. I just passed an array of ints to say, you know, square one, square seven, square five, square like that. And then just do that as fast as you can. And I expect player X to win or whatever. So yeah, I like the, I like the non asynchronous part of that, where in real life, it actually waits for people to tap on the screen. But in the test, it's like, nope, here are the set of moves. And I expect this player to win and do that as fast as you can to make sure the, the game logic is correct. Oh, sure. Like if you, uh, there's definitely a place for both, I think. Mm-hmm, like yeah. if you want to go into like war games mode where like, let's simulate all possible <laughs> conditions here. And uh, yeah. by golly, <laughs> if I, if I want to refactor this thing, I don't want to wait 20 minutes while it goes through all of them. Like just, just do it as fast as you possibly can. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about cases where, you know, there's been some resiliency issues in, in apps that I've worked on where it's like, wait, hold on. If this happens slightly slower, like if you're on a slow mobile network hmm, and a couple yeah. of events that like in the simulator, like they just shotgun out these, these network calls. And because the simulator is really fast, or even if you're on a real device on really good network, um, it, it comes in and you don't notice that this race condition is, is going to bite you. Hmm. Um, cause it, it tends to not happen, but on slow networks, it does. That, that's kind of an area where I've liked sort of like, well, let's see if, if this one comes out first and this one goes out second, but this one returns first, what happens? Do we still have all the data to link everything together mm. sort of thing? Yeah. So that's where I've, I've liked scheduler type systems for, for tests. Hmm. Not saying it's like <laughs> the best way. Ideally, you wouldn't have to worry about that. But if you're coming onto an existing project, sometimes you might want to see, you know, how does the system react if I'm, if I'm doing things out of a slightly different order than might be, you know, in the ideal case yeah well it's almost like a kind of um fuzz testing isn't it like what if this does come out of order Mm -hmm. or something like that so uh yeah yeah no i didn't think about that but that's a a good idea yeah and if you're simulating user type stuff like if you're looking to uh to test that debouncing on something like you Mm -hmm. know i think i mentioned before if you have a search box that is really supposed to wait for the user to have typed in a minimum of three characters and even if they've meet the minimum three characters let's wait until they stop you know typing for you know a half millisecond before we actually go ahead and make the network request that sort of thing is, is not the sort of thing you would test with just a run it as fast as you can you, you would want something to say okay like let's pretend that it is sort of user um based sort of thing or simulate network conditions or simulate i don't know hard disk look up if you happen to deal with that like well let's assume it's not instantaneous it's not already in the registers, in the CPU, sort of. Let's pretend it might take a little while, sort of thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I never thought about that too much, but you're right. This thinking about it as like a, a stream of data or a sequence really makes all since it's like one dimensional, right? It's just a straight line of stuff. But that also makes you think about the time component more. Which, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I never thought about that. But you're right with the debouncing example and waiting for network requests um, and sort of being able to see how that writes to that like the debouncing example for example actually writing that's like how would you do it with a timer and every time they type something you extend the timer another 200 milliseconds and then when they've stopped typing the timer fires and then you send out the request but then they start typing again it seems like a big mess to do if you were writing that kind of manually yourself but i think the rx swift example it's like you know it's just an extra line say like debounce 0.3 and you're done or something but yeah, it does make you more aware of the time component of things. Right. And I've definitely written the very kind of code you just talked about. Where <laughs> Is that how you do it? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe there's a better way, but, you know, it works and it's it's kind of more boilerplate. I'm like, all right, you know, user tapped. Okay. Well, 
set the counter, you know, or reset the counter mm-hmm. again. Yeah. You know, every time it goes off, it's like check this. Like, did the user tap? Oh, they didn't tap. All right, go, go for it. You know, carry forth. But it's definitely easy to get wrong, and it's not as easy to sort of see. Um, like, oh man, uh, maybe there was a better way of doing this, or maybe following the flow. If if you are not the one who wrote it, and you're reading somebody else who wrote it, it's like what, what's going on here? I think the the stream based sort of thing that rx swift gives or or react or reactive extensions gives in general is kind of nice in that respect hmm, yeah um and maybe that's a good segue to say like as much as we're sort of cheering and probably you know giving all the pros here i want to make sure we have here in the show notes uh, a blog post that's uh, about rx java sort of the the cousin to rx swift you know still dealing with the reactive extensions world of like here in this article talking about when to not use rx java um hmm. And kind of gives a, hey, we got a new mantra. Everything is a stream, which <laughs> I think I mentioned before when we talked about uh, Swift in particular. We're like, you know, not everything has to be a protocol. Sometimes, you know, we, you know, yes, we do have this new shiny thing, but let's not apply it to everything. And like he gives a, a great example of if you needed to implement a function that returns the max of two provided integers, you know, is A bigger or B bigger, uh, you could do it. As, a, as an observable in RX Java, uh, or you could just do it, you know, the less fancy pants way, and it'll be so much easier to read and understand instead of having to sort of use this tool for something that is not really all that good at doing because there is a bit of overhead for using it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Greg, your um, mentioning of sequence, I hadn't really looked at that before, but did you find about these kind of things when you were doing your deep dive into protocols a couple of years ago? Um, remember you were you were looking at all the different types of protocols. I was, yeah, and that seems to be the new new hotness. I don't know. A lot of people are talking about collections in Swift in general. So there's like sequence right, yeah. and there's collection, random access collection, bidirectional, indexable, or whatever. And so they're all. It's sometimes a little bit of a tangle, but sequence is sort of the uh, low. I was going to say lowest, lowest or highest. I don't know, depending on which you know which direction you want to go. But it's like the most basic, mm-hmm. like, here is a stream of stuff one after the other, and that's it. No guarantees about it. Um, so it's sort of the, the most basic right. kind of collection, I think. But yeah, yeah. So something I'm still looking to write about, because everyone, everyone loves collections, it seems. So yeah, looking more <laughs> at looking more what a sequence, what, what is a sequence even, that kind of thing. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely yep. check out the reactive extension stuff. I think... Um, one thing that i like is that it's not like um i'm trying to think what's like react Native. no i guess react Native even what's something that if you use it you have to use it everywhere I, I can't think of a good example but it's this is not like that it's not like oh i gotta do all of my views over again to use this reactive stuff it's not like that you can just have it in one place if you want to so it's something that you can kind of just try in one part of your app just the network layer just the ui layer or something like that and um you know, you can keep it localized to one place. So if you hate it, you can always just take it out. But it's not, I, I don't think it's something that's like going to plant its tentacles through the core of your app. And it's like, oh no, we're stuck with this forever. Um, so yeah, it's something worth looking into, I think. Right. And as a comparison to something that I, I looked at before, um, Reactive Cocoa, I think to, to my eyes, it sort of suffered a little bit from one, it, it's Objective C, but it's sort of, like adds an extra layer of language on top of that Mm -hmm. that made it a little bit hard to sort of parse and understand what's going on. And it felt like you had to learn this completely different language to 
sort of get started. Whereas here with RX Swift, even in cases where like, well, I don't know what this particular step does, but given what the next step is, I can kind of imagine what it does. Mm. And it's it's a lot more terse than you know, if nothing else, because it's Swifty rather than than Coco React Coco's Objective C sort of paradigm. Hmm. But I also feel like it it required less of the shove everything into a closure that then itself is like in another closure, like a Russian nesting doll. And this is much more, <laughs> at least visually more like, here's this step. Okay. Now do this other step. And then do almost like as if you're writing prose or, or a bullet list of like, here are the checklist of things I need you to do today. Sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other benefit of the RX Swift is that it's kind of, I don't know if cross platform is the right word, but reactive extensions. There's like RX Java, RX Swift, RX C sharp and whatever. So this article that you have about why not to use, rx java like i don't really know java that well but i'm reading it and i'm like i know what this is i know what the observable is and the code even looks a little i mean java is kind of c-like anyway so um it's very readable but yeah if you learn rx java and you learn all of the reactive concepts there and then you learn swift and you're like oh rx swift i already know it because i learned the rx part in java and swift is just you know the language is different but all the concepts of the observables and subscriptions and bindings and all that stuff is the same so I like the idea of um, being able to transfer the knowledge possibly if I, you know, decide to, I hate Swift and I want to, you know, go back to being a JavaScript developer or something. I can always go with RxJS or whatever it is and keep the same concepts, if mm-hmm. not the language. Right, right. Okay, Tim, you're still awake? Mark? Okay. I, I'm still awake, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what would Uncle Bob think about, about this? Oh, stuff man. <laughs> He'd tell you to write your test first, and then yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, as long as it's testable, as it's testable, it's okay. Probably. I did do that for mm-hmm. the sample app that I'm working on for um, the Playgrounds conference because I'm, I'm talking about RX Swift, and I actually tried a little TDD, and I wrote the tests and had it fail, and then wrote the subscription mm-hmm. or the observable that handled it properly, and yeah, it worked out. So definitely possible to do if you want to want to do that. I was actually going through a TDD lesson for an upcoming course I'm writing on later um, and did the same thing. I basically started with the t- writing the tests first and then adding, you know, testing a struct that I hadn't written yet and then writing the struct to satisfy the, the tests. And the whole idea of, of writing something that's red and fails and making it green and then refactoring later on if you have to. So, so the red-green refactor principle. Yeah, I kind of kind of like it. I don't definitely don't do that like day to day, but it was uh, it was nice to, it was nice to do it, and you get that maybe it's just a satisfaction. I don't know what the feeling is. You get that feeling of satisfaction because it's like oh yeah. the test the test fails and you're sad, and then you write some code and you're like oh the test passes. So I yeah. think it's like a little shot. But you of- know what? We all write that way. We all write that. We all write that way now because we're all kind of learning Swift. And as we start sitting down in front of Xcode and start typing away and what we think should work doesn't, and we get the big red thing and then we kind of figure out what we did wrong and refactor it until we get it right or, you know, look up the documentation. So we're kind of doing test-driven development as it is currently, you know, as we all try to struggle to learn Swift. Yes. That's no, definitely agree. one way of looking at it. Like, <laughs> yeah. When I see it complain to me like, yo, CG float is not of type CG float. Would you like to correct yeah, it to with CG that. float? Exactly. I'm like, mm, okay, go for that. Go for it, Xcode. Maybe yeah. I have like, you know, an umlaut or something in there that's not renderable yeah, yeah. in my language. Or something. You be you. That's, you do you. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the CG float is not a CG float. It's probably one of the most popular uh, angry red uh, signals we get. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, should we get to our picks, boys? Sure. Let's do it. Sure. Okay. 
All right. So, Mr. Lopez, if that's your real name, uh, you have a pick? Yes. And it's, it's kind of more of like a tip. So if you've ever had to correct something in your dictionary for, for Mac OS and, and certainly have, right? Like company names and whatnot. Sometimes you can be a little too fancy with that and like, oh no, I accidentally corrected something that was, you know, already correct. Now it's incorrect. And now I have this terrible like problem having to go in and fix the autocorrect on my Mac. Uh, here is like a nice little tip here on how you can remove these, you know, learned words. Let's say you've moved on to a different product, and it turns out that, no, when I type out this one word, it actually should be all lowercase, not uppercase, because I'm no longer working for that company, right? Um, you can really just go in to your library folder, then there's a subfolder called spelling, and then you can open up the local dictionary file in any of your text editors. Please make sure it's a plain text editor. Heaven help you if you use something like you know text edit that will try to make it rich text or something. Or you want to use something like, yeah, <laughs> you want to use something like Sublime or Text Wrangler, or in my case, I just used Vim, and I went into my local files like, oh, here you go, here's the one word that I don't actually want it to be in there, or here's one that was misspelled because I, quote unquote, corrected it into something that's now incorrect, and it just makes your life a little easier. I don't know if there's any utilities out there that make this a little bit, you know, cleaner to do. Yeah, I bet you could make there's a little an app Mac idea program for somebody. Does that? I was going to say, yeah, would you pay yeah, ninety nine like, cents for that, Simon? <laughs> A dictionary editor? 99 cents, I think, easily. Yeah, yeah. 99 cents easily, just because if it can do things like, hey, uh, you know what? I changed my mind. Go in and, and undo all this sort of stuff. That would be pretty cool. Because right now, like, if I completely mess it up and save, it's like, oh, there's no going back. Now I have to go in and, and add it back in again. So I, I could see somebody added simply to this. And it also makes me kind of wish that I had something like that for iOS, where it's kind of all or nothing with your your auto-correction stuff, like, you can go in and, and reset them somewhere. I think it's, like, keyboard settings or something. I forget where exactly it is. But there's no way to go, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, to go in and say, oh, no, I, I obviously fat-fingered this on a touch device, so remove this mm. one. But, at the very least, for part of your life, when you're sitting in front of a Mac, here you go. So, Jaime, how big was your local dictionary? Mine is empty, by the way. <laughs> I have nothing in there, but how many words did you have in yours? Oh, really? Um, mine wasn't that many. It was maybe 15, 20 words, and I pared it down to probably less than 10. Okay. Tim, did you have a look? Mark? I have three. You have three? I have three. Anything embarrassing? Yeah. I have, uh, well, Skitch Scoring, which is spelt wrong, and Strombolopolis. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you talked about There you go. See, now you can actually fix them as need be. I didn't even know that was the case. A scoring. Right, it's fixed, but I think scoring already is a word, right? I think so. I don't know why that it depends how you spell it. Are you spelling S C S C O R I N G? Put like two R's or something. And it's- yeah, yeah. Scoring. I, 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 well, dyslexic typing, right? The scroll, whatever. <laughs> Unpronounceable. I have a bunch of names and a bunch of app names for for my own apps that I've written. Wow. Okay. That's just me yeah. then. Yeah. Like okay. Island, for example. I was going to say the uh, the the spell checker on on iOS ten has got is definitely drunk because makes up words that i'm typing completely different words and puts <laughs> phrases in when they shouldn't be there and you have to be really careful mark do you have a pick i do have a pick so uh we've talked a little bit in past few shows about machine learning and, and neural networks and uh mentioned that 
there's, as part of the Accelerate framework, there's something called BNNS, which is the basic neural network subroutines. Uh, but it turns out that there's a whole other set of functions uh, in iOS and macOS that uh, do a very similar thing. Uh, and they're part of Metal. They're called Metal Performance Shaders, uh, MP, MPSCNN, so Metal Performance Shaders uh, Convolutional neural, neural Network. So it's a set of functions that, that perform inference or evaluate neural networks, uh, a specific type of neural networks uh, that are used for image processing mainly. And the interesting thing is that there's these two completely parallel, completely independent sets of functions built into iOS and macOS. So my pick is not the functions themselves, but an article by, I'm going to get the name wrong, uh, Matthijs Holmans. Uh, so actually, Tim turned me on to this article, so thanks for that, Tim. But the interesting thing about it is it, it compares and contrasts these two sets of functions. And... Uh, Fundamentally, the, the main reason it seems why there are two is that there are apparently two different teams in Apple who needed the same kind of functionality, so they built them independently. That's what, that's what, it, that's what it seems like. Uh, but they do have some differences, and this article spends a, goes into a lot of detail, spends a lot of time talking about what the details are. Uh, a couple of them are, are that BNNS runs on the CPU, whereas MPSCNN runs on the GPU, so sometimes that... Can, can speed things up uh, running on the GPU, but sometimes not. Uh, also, there's there's something called the um, activation function, which is a kind of a fundamental piece of a neural network that tells you how it decides, based on a couple of inputs, how it decides what the output is. And there's, there's a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, BNNS has a certain list of them, whereas MPSCNN uh, has that same list, but it's also much more customizable. In fact, Across the board, it seems like the metal version is much more customizable than the than the accelerate version. Uh, it, it can also handle uh, things like softmax layers, which are uh, basic concept is it, it lets you represent the output of any given set of computations within the network as a probability of different results, as opposed to a a, a deterministic result, which is which is useful for uh, having the network predict uh, probability of certain outcomes, which is really, which is a really interesting thing. So, so there's there's a lot of detail here, and I'm just giving kind of the flavor. So, if you have an interest in this, I recommend that you go read the article. It's, it's actually really good. Uh, bottom line is that if you need flexibility, MPS CNN is is probably the way to go. Uh, although there might be some overhead because you have to deal with some of the uh, the, the metal. Um, uh, formalism as opposed to the accelerate formalism. So if you're doing everything else in accelerate, it might make sense to do to use BNNS just because it fits in a little bit better. But read the article if you have an interest in this. Uh, lots of good information there. Mm -hmm. I like reading these typical or tough articles and then getting Mark to explain to me what they said. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite part is about training. What does he say about training? Uh, yeah. So part, don't do so, it on your phone because it might catch fire. <laughs> right, right. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but but uh, I mean, if you consider that that uh, that your your iPhone now is as powerful as as a desktop was, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, people were doing for training simple neural networks ten or fifteen years ago, although not the ones that they have today. So it is possible to train a network on the iPhone, uh, but but it's probably not recommended. Uh, and and that actually raises a good point: is that both of these sets of functions 
do not do training. They only do the inference, the evaluating of, of the of the uh, of the network on a on a certain set of input data, uh, and and so in order to use any of these, you need to have some other way of training the network. What training means is 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 the network has a huge number of parameters that are essentially curve fit to the data that your input data to give to give your your results and 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 the, if if they're done right, they're very good at predicting results that are outside of your training set, your your input data set. So you can train on a on a you train the network on a huge amount of input data, and then you get some new input data uh, when you actually want to use it, and you get the you get the result. For example, if you want to have a a, a network that that tells you whether your your a picture is a cat, so you train it on a whole bunch of cats and a whole bunch of dogs and a whole bunch of birds and and it you know you tell it what's what so it can figure out what inside the image makes this image an image of a, of a cat so then when you give it another picture of a car it'll say no that's not a cat but then when you give it a whole different image of a cat it says yeah that's a cat so that training mm-hmm. where you're giving it the thousands or hundreds of thousands of millions millions of the pictures of cats and other things uh, to so it can learn what what's what that's what you don't want to do on your slower device only there was some yep. way to get hundreds so, of thousands of pictures of cats from our computers, you know? Yeah, uh, you know, who, who would think that, uh, well, you mentioned there were those tubes. You might, there might be some cats hiding in those tubes. You think so? <laughs> that many, though? I don't know, yeah. about a hundred thousand. That seems like a lot, but, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of cats out there on the internet. So in the middle of this article, there's a link to a previous article that Matthias wrote. Um, I can find it. That talks about uh, it's a it's similar similar kind of thing that he talks about in this article, but it's a couple of app examples where he shows um, feeding it a picture and telling it, and it'll it'll determine what's in the picture and, and how to train yeah. and stuff. And it's got more colored yeah. pictures and graphs and stuff like that in there too. So, yeah, yeah, this is all it's all an example of a of a kind of learning called supervised learning, where where you have a huge number of inputs, and if you want to classify, it, you have to someone has to tell it that. This this input is of type cat. This input is of type dog. This input is of type car. Uh, and if you give it enough, it's able to figure to to find features in the images. And because it knows which ones are of that category or that class, it's called nothing to do with the you know, software class. Uh, it, it's it's able to figure out which features are, are are strongly correlated with it being of type cat. So then, so then, when you give it a whole new image, it can it can look through and figure out what what features are there, and if enough of the features of Katniss are there, nothing to do with the Hunger Games Katniss. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if if this image has enough Katniss to it, then it then the network decides that this is an, an image of a cat. If it doesn't have enough Katniss but has more dogness, then it hmm. predict it's a cat. And uh, that's where the things like the softmax come in. Where you can say, rather than saying this is a cat or this is not a cat, which is what a standard neural network will do, uh, you can say, well, this this image has a eighty five percent chance of being a cat, and uh, you know a forty five percent chance of being a dog, for example. And so that's a pretty useful thing. It's kind of an advanced feature that uh, that is actually relatively new. If you want to learn more about that, actually. My pick a couple of weeks ago was was a Coursera course on advanced neural networks taught by Jeffrey Hinton. He talks quite a bit about SoftMax, so you can go and check that out. 
Right. And as I said before, the Photos app now has a Faces feature, which I guess is using this kind of technology, right? Absolutely it does. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Yep. But I, I posted something here for the show notes on uh, – this came out related to Pinterest. I guess they're putting out in beta this thing they're calling um, – what are they calling it? Lens, Lens, I think. Yeah. Pinterest Lens Beta has the beta tag on it. It uses something I assume concretely under the cover is very similar where you, you hover over here and then they're showing here, what is it, like a table, right? And it goes and it figures out, well, what's in there? It's a dining room table. There's chairs. There's I don't know, salt and pepper shakers in there to try to find you pins that are related to that on Pinterest, which is pretty cool. Because if you're, I don't know, walking around Ikea or something on your mm-hmm. way to the uh, the restaurant part of Ikea, which is the best part, um, you might say, uh, maybe we can find something else here and say, oh, yeah, they're, they're cool. They're, there's yeah. something here on Pinterest that gives me an idea of what we could do with this. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly doing doing this. Uh, essentially, it's it's trained on a huge number of photos that have tables in it, so it knows what the the features of, of, uh, of tableness are in photos, and it's just applying mm. it in real time. And you can actually do the inference. You can actually do the application of this network once it's trained pretty quickly. Uh, the training takes a huge amount of time, but the evaluation or the inference on any given image is is pretty fast. So you can you can actually do this in real life as you're. I'm not sure if they're doing it with a an actual photo that you're taking in real time, but but you could essentially do that. Yeah, just point it at in the example broccoli or pomegranate to see what recipes look. But so you could you could actually uh, uh, just take a take an image in real time, run it to the network to find out how much tableness it has. And uh, and compare it to other features, other other things that have similar uh, tableness quantities or or pomegranate quantities, and and get matches based on that. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, do you have a pick for us? I have four picks. So take that, okay. Mr. Lopez Jr. Um, <laughs> I wasn't pre- wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared. It caught me off guard. <laughs> well, it's not actually four picks. It's, a it's throw just down. It's just a single pick, but um, it's the website skilled.io. So that's where the Swift Summit conference videos are coming out. There are four of them posted already. So haha, those are my four picks. But um, yeah, I was at the conference and the talks, as last year's talks were, were really good. And so four of them are up there. So you should check them out if you didn't know about them already. There's one about protocol-oriented programming, state machines, our favorite topic enumerations, uh, genetic algorithms, and GraphQL, which also came up on this very fine program, I believe, in the past. So, um, yeah, you should check them out. Did you attend this uh, genetic algorithms in Swift? I think it was right before mine. I have no memory of it. I think it was right before mine or right after mine, so I wasn't actually in the audience. Uh, So, no, Mm -hmm. that's one that I have to watch. Uh, It's on my list. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to check that one out too. That's some genetic algorithms are another interesting type of of learning that's very different from the neural network type of learning. But uh, but the but the idea is if you're trying to figure out uh, how to classify something, uh, then you can you can start with a a set of parameters uh, that are completely chosen randomly, and then do essentially what evolution does you 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 flip one you know you change one parameter and see the effect if it doesn't help does it doesn't does it not help to approach the thing that you're trying to fit uh if it does fit then you then you keep that and you try randomly switching another parameter and seeing does that get you towards your goal or does that get you further away from your goal 
and and by by just randomly flipping these parameters or flipping these bits, eventually you'll you'll converge into something that fits what you're trying to describe very very well. And mm. so that's why they're called genetic algorithms because they're they're basically it's like evolution. You you randomly flip something and you check its fitness and and the most fit things survive and and uh, and eventually you approach your, your solution. Kind of cool thing. So I'm going to read this one or, or view this one. There's a transcript too, so you mm. can always read. That's what I like about them as well. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And I was going to say, if you believe in evolution, of course, right, Mark? That's sure. Seems <laughs> <laughs> like all right. Yes, pull, get the cane. Now. Pull him out of there. All right. End of the show. Right there. <laughs> yeah. So I think I uh, saw an example of uh, somebody using genetic algorithms to solve um, playing. Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they had given it like, here's the end goal, like go, go get over here, and it tries like a bazillion different times, you know, going the wrong direction, yeah. jumping into pits, getting hit by enemies until it figures out like, eventually just by trying random stuff, like, well, what if I go for five meters and then jump? Oh, okay, oh, great, hooray, yeah. success. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Huh. Well, my pick is not exactly a pick or even a tip at this point. It's sort of a. Uh... A collection of topics that I'm putting together for an advanced iOS advanced Swift course that I'm teaching. Um, so I'm going to run these by you guys, and you can sort of maybe throw some other ideas at me as well. But um, Unsafe Swift is one of the things I want to talk about. And that got me – there's a post on com that came out, I think, last week uh, by – is it An Ray interview Fix, with right? Rob Ricks, you mean? No, it's a – not Rob Ricks. I'm getting the names mixed up. It's uh, Rob okay. – Ray. It's the other Ray. <laughs> Rayfix. The other Ray on Ray Wonderland. Rayfix, yeah. Uh, the other Ray. Um, he wrote an article on Unsafe Swift, but in the middle of that, he linked to an art, uh, a talk on Realm, I believe, by Mike Ash on memory, which was really fascinating, which I thought would be good for the for, good for the course. Of course, I should, full disclosure here, when I've done the uh, intro, intro to Swift course, I actually borrowed two of Greg's videos uh, to talk to the class about uh, different things. Um, but one of the things we talked about, we, we used in the last class and just sort of an introduction to what can go, where, where Swift goes. This is sort of a day three topic I gave them, but I'll probably talk more about it in this, uh, advanced courses, protocols with associated types or paths, um, and do a little bit of functional programming, I think. And, uh, maybe I'll look at, uh, Mark's idea of unowned as well. So I might create some, uh, yeah. There's a, there's like a, weak versus unowned when we talk yeah. about that that's oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the unsafe stuff is interesting too that's the stuff i was talking about with all the pointers a while back right yeah yeah that's pretty useful for you know if you're going to do stuff like accelerate framework and things like that. right right yeah and one of the one of the things that um where did i get this idea from but somebody was talking about dropping down to 16-bit uh numbers for or floats i guess for um certain kind of calculations that work better than using 32-bit i think swift doesn't support anything below 32-bit right and that's maybe why why you go into the unsafe swift areas with pointers well that's kind of what i'm putting together what do you think yeah sounds good you can have follow-up when you have uh (laughs) you know when you've you've finalized everything and tell us how yeah any lessons you may have learned is you know, as they say, when you teach something, you tend to learn more about the subject than you did right, before. Yep. So that, that'll be great to hear about. Well, oh, there's Greg's talk. Look at that. But that's his, this is the, the one from last time, I guess, right? The 55 standard library protocols, right? 
Yeah, as, as, of, as of this recording, only the first four are from, uh, well, they say Swift Summit San Francisco 2016. So only those are the, are the new ones. Yeah, no, you're talking about the talks. Yeah, I, was just, I just happened to notice one of your old talks is on here. Yeah, yeah, that was from last, uh, two years ago. Yep. Alrighty. Well, I guess that's it. Hmm? So, hi, man. If people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with a hair. All right. And Greg, if people want to find you on the interwebs? I'm also on Twitter as Greg Heo. All right. And Mark, how do people get a hold of you? Best way to find me is markr at smapsoft.com. Uh, although, since I've been accused of being a bit of a Luddite with regards to Twitter, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually do have, you can you can reach me on Twitter at, at smapsoft, but I can't guarantee that I'll see it quickly. <laughs> All right. And uh, as I said at the top of the show, I'm Tim Mitra, and I'm also T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. So I guess that's it for the week, and we'll talk to you guys maybe next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. And you just listened to the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast's Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> I thought you were going to tease so Greg, the uh, think... West Coast show or something next week, Tim. Well, maybe I will and maybe I won't. I just, like I said, it depends on whether we can actually pull it off, right? That's true. But you should still record and then you can say, I'm Timitra and I'm in Cupertino, California. People are like, oh my God, what's <laughs> yeah. going on? That would be so odd, you know? Oh but no, you should totally conspiracy do that. time. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and never mention <laughs> yeah, it again. Yeah. Just say it at the top of the show. And exactly. see how <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And then not be on the show next week. Or the week after, I mean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just disappeared. You were in Cupertino, and then you were never heard from again. I've been I've been assumed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a slow news day as far as Apple's concerned, eh? Yeah. Oh. Well, they just had their earnings report, so. Yeah, we talked about that last week. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah there the was a... Stock's over 130. Yeah, it's great. Is it? No. Yep. Hmm. One Sorry, of Samsung's Carmen. battery factories had a fire really. Oh, yeah, yeah. Da- disposing the damn batteries. Yeah, hello, <laughs> problematic irony. to begin with. Oh, they were trying to dispose of them when that, in the car. Yeah, fire. I don't know more detail. Like, I don't know if they just, you know, tossed them in, tossed them in a rubbish bin somewhere and said, all right, that's good enough for the day. Spontaneous, yeah. Let's go have some beers. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow, look at that spike. Just looking at Apple stock. Yeah. Mm hmm. I wonder if it'll get to where it was. Where was it two years ago that it hit? Like, oh, it's almost back up there again. It's it's at an all time high right now, pretty much. Yeah, do you remember when it was like seven hundred dollars or something like that? That was before the seven to one split. Yeah, right. So right. you would so that was multiply it by again. seven if you wanted yeah. to yeah. roughly translate it. Right. Oh, multi- multiply this by seven. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, because they they split it into seven ways. Like every okay, every stock you had, you'd get seven. Right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize. That. I didn't know what the math was. Okay. That's good. Let's yeah, try that. Yeah. So this would be. It, it would be roughly nine hundred twenty dollars right now. Wow. Yeah. So we didn't talk about it on the show because it's a little convoluted as follow up. But you know, we talked about the the earnings and and how things went for iPhone. And then there's been a little bit of news brouhaha going out about, like, well, actually, since this quarter had one extra week, and if you divide it out, it turns out that they're down again on sales. And then what? it actually turns out, like, no, no, no. If you account for the fact that the phone was available at a slightly different time, you don't have as much spillover from from the launch days, right, which are going to be the heaviest days to to pull in so it actually comes out a little bit ahead tiny bit of fractional bit ahead but one of the one of the analysts sort of pointed that fact out Crazy. So, well, even the, even the in real news it's it's hard to get it right yeah there was also a report today that, that i didn't uh, mention that that the they're predicting the iphone 8 is going to cost over a thousand bucks for one model like for a one. special like super fancy edition model oh is that right I thought that yeah, was... yeah, that there would be oh, like okay, you okay. know the normal ones, and then the like tenth anniversary edition. You know, it's I don't know, got it's made with bald eagle tears or something, right. you know, instead of a liquid <laughs> crystal display, <laughs> bald eagle <laughs> ceramic, you know, whatever it is. Like I, I saw that that article, but they distinctly pointed out like one particular model, yeah. which I mean, maybe I mean, when else are you going to do that sort of thing? Twenty years, like the twentieth edition Max sort of thing, maybe. I guess the other thing that came out today news wise was that um they picked up an executive who was formerly for, for apple tv that is formerly right, from yeah, right, amazon right. fire tv and formerly at netflix when they spun off roku right um, so that's interesting i think in terms of like having like they're not going to hire somebody like that and they say like, oh okay well we're not going to upgrade the hardware like clearly they're going to come out with something interesting and new rather than just sort of just letting it coast hmm. so Maybe our guidance relating to Apple TV might end up changing in the future, depending on what they come up with. See again, it's like carbon and carbon and um, and uh, cocoa, cocoa, cocoa with <laughs> React React Native and RX Swift. They're 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 both you know reactive, aren't they? I always just remember like carbon is like a base element, and it's like oh that must be the lower level one. That's always how I remembered it. Or that's what I assume <laughs> that I, I always thought it was it was a carbon copy of your iOS nine app into iOS ten. Uh, okay, really? but <laughs> carbon no? is like from the old days, though, right? Like you could either use carbon or cocoa. Carbon, carbon was the was the uh, the emulator, the iOS nine emulator that ran in iOS ten when iOS ten first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're oh OS ten. I'm sorry, fixing in my head. No, 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 OS ten. What you're saying? Uh, OS ten. It's sorry, it's, not it, iOS ten. OS ten. Okay. No, OS like X. A, come oh, on. OS, oh, OS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Not iOS nine. iOS ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OS nine. iOS nine. That was like last year, Mark. What are you talking about? Yeah. It was it yeah, was a yeah, set of API. Yeah. I think they in, like they had OS nine, and then they added a bunch right. of APIs to say, "Hey, here's another way to write apps." And then they had the same APIs on OS ten. So it was a way to kind of bridge it over. Um, but yeah, it was because it was C based. It was like in my mind, it was like this is this is the lower level way to do things. So that's how I was, right. uh, how I always associated the the carbon name. I kind of remember it more as being something that was intended to bring Adobe over. Convince them to, <laughs> that to was right. that in, was definitely why, that was definitely why they invented or 
they they came up with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think them and Microsoft. Okay, so for for the record, Coco mm-hmm. seems to be a a uh, Labrador Retriever, like uh, the long haired type dog, right? That's Coco, learning Coco, and then Carbon, a couple of hound dog type dogs, but you know they're both standing in profile, so it's very confusing. Hmm. I would have used a completely different, like a cat, or that would be kind of looking forward into OS ten, wouldn't it? I would use the cat for Coco. But there, but there were no, there were no cats in I, in OS. I was about to say iOS ten again. In in Mac OS ten, when it first came out, there were no cats. That wasn't until ten point three or something like that, wasn't it? Well, they had the code names like ten was yeah. still Cheetah, I think. Like it had an internal. Like I guess on the outside we wouldn't have known, but it, I think it was Cheetah was ten ten dot zero. Was it really? Yeah, Cheetah, then Puma, and then uh, I think it was after. I think Jaguar. Yeah, and then Jaguar was the first one where they started using the cat. But I think they all had cat names. We just it was just yeah. like internal yeah, code right. name. Yeah, maybe no, they. Well, no, okay. Uh, OS ten beta. It's called Kodiak. I was just gonna say it's Kodiak. Yeah, what is Kodiak anyway? Kodiak. I thought it was That's wine a bear. Bear. It's not a cat. Yeah. I thought it was wine. But you're right. Ten point ten point zero was Cheetah. Yeah. I okay. I didn't realize that. Then one was Puma. Two was Jaguar. Three was Panther. Four was Tiger. Uh, five was Leopard. And then Snow Leopard. So. Okay. Yeah, I also thought it was. I guess wine name for some reason. Sevens. Was Lion the last cat? Yeah, because they went Lion and then Mountain was... Lion, right? Mountain Lion. Mountain yeah, lion. I well, I mean, so, yeah. it was Lion. Yeah. yeah. Right. Kodiak. Really? I thought it was. I thought it was Puma. Hmm. So I think Puma, instead of uh, Cheetah, instead of El Capitan, right? Because oh, we had Yosemite. I think Snow Yosemite should have been El Capitan. <laughs> yeah. Snow Yosemite. <laughs> right, because I would have emphasized the, like, hey, there's no new features, we're just making it better. Yeah. Well, so yeah. what's, what's yeah. the Snow Sierra going to be? Uh, is there, like, a particular peak in, in the Sierras that's going to be uh, have a name? <laughs> like a hiker's mailbox or something that they have up there? <sighs> see. I'm trying to think what, what's the highest peak there. It's probably, uh, probably well, I, I don't know the resorts. The, 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 from, the, from the resort point of view, it's probably... Um, Either heavenly on the south side, or what's the one? What's the what's the one that had the Olympics? So it says here Mount Whitney is the highest elevation in Sierra. Mm. Oh, that's Sierra oh, in the Nevada. Sierras, yeah, but that's in Lake Placid. Yeah, Sierra Nevada. Yeah, no, that's New York. They had the Olympics in California. Oh. Mount Whitney is the highest in California, but that's not in Tahoe. Mac OS Whitney. The- I don't know. I don't like that. I don't think that's going to go. That's a fair point. Yeah. You know what? I just realized this is about NS Notification Center because you just said that, not about remote and local notifications. And that's what I was referring to. It, it, it would have paid for me to read the article before making my comments. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe cut some of that out, Tim. <laughs> um, okay. So the, the observer. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> I had a feel. I had a feeling that was the case based on what you had said, but I was like, "All right, let me roll with this." Yeah, yeah. It's like mm-hmm. an imp- like an improv show. Like, yes, and and just move on. Right. <laughs> you know, the best moments are when when you call someone else out on the show, don't you know? Yeah. <laughs> but he called himself out. Oh yeah, I, I wasn't calling out. No, I mean uh, Jaime should have done that instead of his very polite yes and. <laughs> what? Uh, <yeah. laughs> Interesting. Yes. So Jaime, continue.